0: Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Rolling, take one. Is it going to be all
1: right? Hello and welcome to All the This
2: is the podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. Banya. And I'm Eric. We have a unique show for you this time around. We'll be talking to both Kate Miller Wilson and Taylor about their recent collaborations. Also, does being in a dark room full time for fifty years sound good to you? We'll learn about the Kinseys, and maybe your thoughts will change on that. We've also got fun answering machine question and a couple of Zine reviews. So, shotgun, gimme, gimme lowdown, fun boy. It's time for another episode of All Through a Lens. Okay, but, but first, before we do any of that fun, how How are you? How have you? Been?
1: Oh, fantastic. I'm pretty good. Um, I tried my best to get out of the house this week to photograph, so that was really nice. Uh, nice. The water has been exceptionally perfect lately. Wet. Like wet. Nice. Mild, Not too warm, not too cold. just right. It's Ooh. fabulous. So Goldilocks water. Headed to PV, which is Palos Verdes for everybody. um, And kind of was photographing kelp.
2: Somebody has
1: to. Exactly. I fell asleep on the beach for a while, which I haven't done in so long. So, yes, I would say that's a win. (laughs) Yeah,
2: absolutely. It sounds actually getting a little chillier here. So sleeping on a warm beach doesn't sound too bad.
1: Exactly. I've been doing my best to kind of savor the last bits of summer. Uh, trying to pay attention and try to be a little bit more present in the day. The days are starting to get a little shorter. Mm-hmm. If everybody has noticed that. Uh, so, yeah, with work and life, I noticed I'm just kind of like running behind as usual. Uh, so everything's about the same there. I'm either in a hurry, rushing around. Uh, so, yeah, just getting in the water and like doing things that I love, like swimming and photographing is just perfect for me. I I really, really need that. Also, side note, anytime I use my goggles and snorkel, I feel like a kid. (laughs) Jacques Cousteau exploring the silent world every single time. I was with some friends and we were like getting out of the water and I was like, is there a sexy way to wear a snorkel and goggles and i don't think there is so anytime i get out of the water it's like i have to kind of over exaggerate the movements of like wearing flippers and stuff kind of like creature black lagoon but more clownish i guess should we
2: run a contest for people to take sexy pictures of snorkel and goggles with flippers
1: yeah absolutely there we go I've been visualizing a few images in my head um, and looking kind of for particular locations where I can photograph them. So that's kind of what I've been doing this week, kind of scouting a bit, I would say. So this is kind of somewhat of a collaboration with the two friends that I just spoke about um, because I want to photograph them. And, of course, I'm always open to, you know, how they feel comfortable being photographed. And anything that they would like to bring to the table is Awesome. So, kind of a collaboration, kind of something we're talking about on this uh, episode. So, look at that. This is a very collaborative
2: episode, isn't
1: it? <laughs> yes. So, I'm. Um, it's nerve-wracking, but also extremely exciting, but then nerve-wracking again, because I have this specific idea in my head, and I just haven't been able to find the perfect location for it. Actually, that's a lie. There is a perfect location for it, and Eric, you know where that location is, because you know what photograph I want to take, and it's somewhere in Idaho.
2: Tiny little, is it state or maybe county park? Yes. Near Balanced Rock.
1: yes. It's like a little um, yeah. picnic area it and is. there's a perfect place there, but I just haven't been able to find a place like that here. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to be a minute, but yeah, super excited. It's kind of been fun to scout a bit and um, yeah, photographing a lot. Things are coming and that's about it for me, but Eric... What? I see you have some notes here. So please, please tell us what you've been up to.
2: Well, this past weekend or two weekends ago for listeners, I explored Columbia County, Washington. I'd been there maybe a year or so ago, but found some other places to shoot. Since it's October, I I guess maybe subconsciously, I subconsciously decided to shoot cemeteries. I didn't realize that was the only thing I had on my list. And so that can get kind of cliche with like, the faux spookiness, but you know, I went for it anyway. Cemeteries in the early morning, like the, at the pre-dawn and the dawn are just beautiful places.
1: Just old, I'm sorry, but old cemeteries in general are just kind of beautiful and amazing. And I, I do miss that, the the, the fancy headstone. Um, obviously we don't have that kind of money <laughs> to just like get all elaborate, but I don't know. I like how people spent money on those types of things.
2: Yeah, it is actually kind of cool. I'm kind of a creature of habit, as you, you- don't say. As you know, yeah, yeah. And I've got zero problem whatsoever camping in the same spot every single time I go out. But this time I found a small campground on Forest Service Land, and I, I don't know if you know what this means, but it was in a gulch.
1: There's some words that in the English language that I am not a fan of, and gulch might be one of them.
2: So it's not a valley, a gulch, A gulch is not a valley, it's not a canyon, it's not a ravine, it's not a gully. So Columbia County has a ton of these. Everything is, you know, Thompson Gulch or Highland Gulch. I have no idea if those are real places. They sent me down like a rabbit hole.
1: Or like a gulch.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it could be rabbit gulch. They sent me down rabbit gulch over what was the difference between all of these things. And since we have a film photography podcast, I thought I would talk about what the difference between a gulch and a valley is. So basically a gulch is named after the sound the water makes. Gulch's original meaning was gulp. Like the word gulch used to mean, mean gulp.
1: Oh, like when kids need water and they just drink really loud. Yeah, like they can't like quietly drink water. It's like they're gulching it.
2: Or some adults, but yeah, they're <laughs> gulching it.
1: And it's, it's also
2: possible that the word gulch comes from gush, but it's probably possible that gulp comes from gush as well. So either way... It's all about water. A gulch is formed by periodic flash floods down a river or a stream that's always running. A gulch is is wet; it's always wet. And this was everything was damp where I was camping. Everything like up on top was essentially like a desert or almost desert. But in the gulch, it it was my my tent was soaked in the morning. Oh. A canyon, on the other hand, is formed by water. And it has a river or stream running through it, but they're they're kind of more slowly formed where a gulch is very quickly formed, and they're always drier. A ravine is larger than a gulch but smaller <laughs> than a canyon, and that's a really dumb definition
1: yeah, what yeah, okay, so can you explain a ravine to me please like what where's a ravine
2: growing up, we had ravines, and I think what they are is when you're in the woods and there's there's, like, a, a valley that's obviously cut by a stream, but it's not big enough to be a gulch. Like, a gulch is, like, a big fucking deal.
1: And it's not big enough to be a canyon. It's smaller Definitely than a, a canyon. canyon. Yeah. So it's a... Rev- okay, so just, like, a smaller version of a canyon. Or, yeah,
2: it's, like, a steep valley, maybe. Okay. <laughs> yeah, a gully, on the other hand, okay. is, is basically a ditch. A hollow it's more of a small depression between the mountains. And a holler is a hollow if you're in Appalachia. Hmm. A coolie, on the other hand, they're very dry. There's no river, or no stream running through them, but they've been formed by some sort of flooding at some point.
1: Yeah, that one is kind of a bummer for me because coolie sounds like somewhere really cool where there's water.
2: Oh, coolies, so. uh, coolies are pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I guess. But if there's no water, I don't know. You know how I am. I, I need to hike to some sort of water. I need to jump in water at the end. And that's kind of like the uh, the satisfaction I get after, like, you hike to a waterfall or something like that. I don't know.
2: So all these words mean all these things and words aren't computer programs. Their definitions shift over time. And so much of all of this is really subjective, especially when dealing with how locals named things. The locals may name a ravine, a gulch. And you know, you can't really tell them, hey, you know, your ravine is actually well, a gulch. Well,
1: actually. <laughs> you can't do
2: that to locals, don't do that. So, but, but on another note, this was my first solo trip of the year where I didn't take along my journal. Remember, I've been journaling and I, I didn't take it and I really missed it.
1: I was wondering if you were gonna talk about that. Yeah, yeah. I
2: missed it. And it's not just because the sun sets at 6.30 and, you know, <laughs> I had a lot of spare time on my hands. I brought, I brought the Lee Miller book that I've been reading. Oh, nice. And that was great, but I did. I, I, I think that, that my memories from this trip, they won't be as clear as others. Even though I mm-hmm. took a, a fuck ton of photos, I think the memories... I think we store, or I anyway, store memories in photographs, but also in writing. And store isn't the right word, but we'll go back to what I said about words a little bit earlier. So I was using the journal as, as part of the expired Ansco project, and that's over when that, that version of it is over. But I think I'm going to keep using it.
1: I think it's a good idea. Yeah,
2: I think so. But other than that, just watching Family Ties and... Some random movies. It's it's a spooky season, so there's been some horror movies being being folded into the mix. I'm kind of on a Godzilla kick again a little bit.
3: Hmm, Really? So
2: Yeah. Yeah, really. (laughs) Really. And that's probably hard to believe, but it's true. That's pretty much all that I've got going on now. Mm -hmm. I've been posting some of the pictures from that trip, you know, uh, on Instagram and I'll be developing a lot more. So more of those to come. More sad graveyard pics of infant graves. And I apologize for that, but there's more on the well it's that time of the episode again, right in the beginning where we slip on our house cardigans and cozy up with our slippers and We're all comfortable and warm and fuzzy. And so naturally, naturally, we're going to check the answering machine. Every episode, we ask listeners to call in and leave us a message answering whatever weird-ass question we come up with. And this one, I don't know, interesting. We'll see. What was the question, Vanya?
1: How did you get good at film photography? Hmm,
2: How did you get good at film photography? We got... So we got six or seven replies, so push the button.
1: Hello, and thank you for calling all through a lens. We are not home right now, so please leave a message, and maybe we'll get back to you at some point. I don't know that I'm necessarily good at it, but I found that following a wide range of professional and amateur photographers can help you redefine what isn't acceptable in a photo, uh, especially because grain, blur... Uh, lack of level, none of these things make a photo bad. They can even be what make a photo exceptional. It also helps, of course, to look through different cultures. Uh, But in the most basic sense, and again, I don't think I'm good at it, but in order to get anywhere with it, I think it's important to just pick up your phone and research whatever minor question you have, because there's a lot of simple things that get confusing, like going up or down the f-stop, which one is more light, which one is less light. Uh, you know, are the various weird things about each camera. Every
0: time you have a question, whatever it is, stop and look it up.
2: Researching what you're doing, funnily enough, it helps you be a better photographer. And so I guess with Robert, we haven't heard from Robert in a little while, right?
1: Yeah, I was like pretty excited to hear from him.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Robert. But yeah, I I think learning from people and I I know that we all get a little, well, we we all have full lives. You know, we're leading like completely other lives than we are in, you know, that, you know, separate lives from, from photography in a lot of ways. You know, we have families or or issues or problems or whatever. And I think it's really hard to remember to be open, to be helpful to people. And, you know, cause that, that does come around in a weird, not really karmic way, but in just so you know, if you if you're nice to people and help them, people are generally gonna be nice to you and help you.
1: Absolutely. I, I I just got a meme recently, too, and it was like talking about like some of the bad, like none of your friend, your film photographer friends tell you about the bad stuff, you know, like bad scans or whatever. And yeah, there's always like those things with a- any sort of hobby or any sort of craft. Uh, you're going to make mistakes, but also the community that was built through Instagram surprisingly enough, has been quite a place to meet people that are doing amazing things. And most of the time, if they're not too busy, they will even answer your questions. And that is so awesome. I've heard it from a few people where it's like, yeah, I get these like these questions that they could probably look up, but I could see why they are asking me.
2: <laughs> I get that a lot. I could answer a number of the questions that I get every day with Here, let me Google that for you. But one, that would be a real dick thing to do. Yeah, that's
0: rude. People
2: people don't always know how exactly to word the question. They're not even sure what they're asking sometimes. Yeah. And so they may get it right or may get it to the point where you understand it as a fellow photographer. But that Google isn't going to know what the fuck they're talking about.
1: So I got good at film photography by spending about eight semesters in a junior college program in and out of the darkroom, taking black and white and color, more black and white than color. And I got evaluated a lot in all my stuff by my professors and by my fellow students and
0: put my stuff up at critiques and got better and got better at printing and evaluating prints And learning how to develop for the way I wanted to
1: print. And just spent way too much time in school taking classes, but loving every minute of it. And I like the darkroom almost better than any place else. So
3: thanks. Bye.
1: It's kind of terrifying to have your entire class critique your work, but I think it's very, very useful and helpful Helps you build relationships, helps you see what other people see, because sometimes when you're photographing something, you have to realize that people are probably not going to just automatically know what you're going for. So to kind of get other people's impression on your work is nice. Instagram kind of has helped with that, I would say, a little bit for the most part, but being in a class and having big prints in front of you and peering down is, is really, really fun. It's a fun process.
2: Yeah, I've never had that. Um, the only critique I've ever really gotten is unsolicited critiques from various social medias, and and all of that is unwanted. But if you're in like a full-on class in person, and I think in person is like a really important part of this. I could be wrong. I think but- so. I, I mean, being critiqued by people you can't see and who can't see your reaction—there isn't any kind of real-world interaction. I think there's yeah. such a tendency for, you know, like your resident neckbeard to just type out a bunch of shit for you. I think I could benefit from it to an extent, especially when it comes to like building relationships. I'm—I've been photographing for a, a, a while now. I wouldn't say a long time, but a while. And I don't—I'm not sure, like if I were just starting out, I think that that could benefit me in a lot of ways. But now I think that I would be, I would benefit from it in different ways. I'm not gonna change my style. I'm pretty much not locked in, but I'm, I'm doing my own thing. If I'm gonna change it's because I'm wanting this change. But I think building that relationship with people would be interesting for me at this point. I think so. I I don't have much of that. I have a bit of it, but I don't have a lot of it. And I think that would be an interesting thing to do. And also, you know, if I were college age and having my peers who were also college age, that would be interesting too, but I'm not college age. Hi, Eric and Vanya. This is Dave from Dave's Grain and Pixels. Um, How to get better at film photography. Well, I don't know if you ever, like, get to that penultimate um, spot where you are as good as you need to be at film photography. So I guess what I'm saying is I'm still working at it. And that's what I would suggest to anyone who
3: wants to get good at film photography. Keep working at it. Keep taking pictures. Don't worry so much about what type of camera to get. Use the camera that you have until you get really
2: good at it. Don't worry about all those fancy film stocks. Just use the ones that you're familiar with and practice and get good at it. And then branch out a little bit. Anyway, that's my suggestions.
1: I think he answered it perfectly, honestly. I'm exactly where he's at with everything in my life, (laughs) including trying to be the best person that I could be as far as myself. It's, you're constantly working on it. You're never just like to the top and you're like, all right, I'm done. I'm good at this and that's it. So might as well try something else. It's never like that really. It's not like, oh, I'm good at this now. It's more of like continuing to further like, create and, and push, your, push your boundaries and get better if that's what you want to do. And that's what I want to do. That's how I want to get good at photography. <laughs> oh, oh, good. And make millions of dollars.
2: And you've come to the right
1: place. <laughs> hey, Eric and Vanya, it's Jeff. Dirty grain photos on Instagram. It's awfully bold of you guys to assume that I've actually gotten good. But anyway, to answer your question, I've been able to achieve this level of competent mediocrity by practicing. You know, luckily, when I first got into this, film cameras were cheap, next to nothing. In fact, I got some for nothing, so it was able to afford me the ability to blow through a lot of rolls. And like anything else, practice makes perfect. Or, you know, halfway decent, I suppose. Anyway guess that's it. Talk to you guys later. Keep up the good work on your end. No pressure. <laughs> we, will,
2: we will keep up the competent mediocrity on our end, for exactly.
1: sure. Exactly. Yeah. It is about just getting out there and doing it. You can't just be behind a screen and just decide, okay, I've done, I've read every single photo, learn book, like any kind of book learn possible. Book? Le- learn book. You know, the books that <laughs> you learn in. Well, <laughs> actually... <laughs> I've had all those, like, I have introduction to black and white photography. Sure. I've probably read through that a dozen times, and I still mix up certain things. It does not matter. It doesn't stick in me. The one thing that does is getting the camera in my hand, going out there, looking at the light, and and practicing. So, yes, 100%. Well,
2: he said, uh, when you said practice makes perfect, it reminded me of this... I had this third grade teacher who was a really intense person and he <laughs> he had a sign up, and this is for third grade, that said, practice does not make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. Oh God. And I'm like, "Oh, okay. Even it's as a third hero. grader, I'm just sort of like, yeah, I get what you're saying, but- it was a very. It was the start of my frustration with other humans. I think it probably hmm. started before then, but that really just that sticklerness of well, actuallying, fucking third graders was re- a real big issue for me. That said, <laughs> he he was the teacher who got in trouble. He got in trouble for two things. One, he lit the chalkboard on fire to teach us long division.
1: Nice. I,
2: I don't remember long division. But I do remember that he caught his chalkboard on fire teaching.
1: That is amazing.
2: Yeah. And second, he would put on MTV f- the whole day. Like it was it was like a good chunk of the day. It was watching which watching videos on MTV. Now, this was third grade, which would have been 82, 83, maybe. So it was some really, really good stuff. It was when MTV was just playing like literally anything at all. That didn't really matter what the video was. It was just like whatever the video was, they they put they played the Cheech and Chong videos. They I I remember the cars
1: I'm thinking like Billy Idol White Wedding. Is that around the same?
2: Yeah.
0: Hey Vanya and Eric, this is Mina from Sydney. I'm on Instagram as at Crook and Flail. Uh, this question was really hard to answer. Um and I gave it a lot of thought and I recorded this message a few times and then deleted it. I'd say I only became good at photography in my own view when people saw my photos and started to interpret them in different ways to the initial intention that I had shot them. I sensed at that point that the photos that I was taking were not just appealing to me and what I could see, but could also connect and resonate with others. Has that happened to you?
1: A few times, but I don't really talk in depth uh, about my photos too much well
0: this
2: fortunately this doesn't require you to it just requires you to listen to other people doing it
1: (laughs) well yeah i mean when sometimes i get a random like comment just i haven't had any shows recently or zines or anything so uh just the few comments i've been getting on stuff is kind of i guess they're nailing it, like, ooh, colors. And I'm like, yeah, okay. colors. <laughs> see what you see.
2: I, it happens to be once in a while. And it's always like, it's always Exciting. so refreshing. I, I used to get it, you know, I, I probably have mentioned it a few times. I used to write poetry. And so I used to get it a lot with that because I think that's more demanding of interpretation. Whereas a picture can just be let be a picture and that's fine. Whereas a poem, you you do tend to mentally pick it apart since we often think in words um, more directly than we think in, in images, especially with an image we're just looking at for the first time. But it is interesting to get that. I, I, I have gotten it a few times, but I've never associated it with like, well, now I'm good. But I think I will. I really like this answer. I do too. He- hearing it, I'm just like, well, I never even thought of this. Never even crossed my mind.
1: Well, so when we were talking with Becky, she was talking about evaluation. I was kind of almost saying the opposite, where it's like you're you're hoping that what you're trying to get across is coming across. But it's even more powerful that people can see beyond that and, and they can come up with their own meaning. And yeah. that's that's great.
2: I would rather that, to be yeah.
1: honest. You're pro. Yeah, I would say you're probably right on that.
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, I uh, let's be honest. When I'm out taking photos, I'm not thinking incredibly deep thoughts about what I'm shooting. I'm just not. I'm there in the moment. I'm enjoying the day, and then when it comes out, then that's a different that's a different time for me. I'm I am reflecting on on the day. I'm, re- I'm reflecting on what the photo means to me, and and maybe some history behind the photo definitely affects you know what I what I think of the photo. And when I show it to people and they come up with something else, that's exciting because I then see that too. I've never really been faced with somebody coming up with an idea and me just being like, oh no, 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 that's definitely not what I'm going for. I, that's not it at all. I'm sure those things could exist, you know, but I'm, I'm very okay with honest interpretation being what the photo's about. You know, my, my the so-called ethereal intent in a lot of ways does not matter.
1: Being open to interpretation, I would say, is important just in general anyways. Being oh, yeah. kind of closed off in that way. I mean, obviously, like if this is like something really, really important that you need to address something, then, of course, you explain that. But having having the the window like open for people to kind of um, imagine something more to your work is
4: is really neat. Yeah, it is. Hi, this is Jeffrey Pittman on Instagram. Uh, great show, guys. Hey, uh, I've been at this uh, photography thing for 40 years, and I think the key to getting better is just keep learning from mistakes and pressing forward and never giving up, just like a lot of other things. Uh, thanks for all the great work you guys do. Take care. Bye.
1: Don't worry, Jeffrey. I will continue to make mistakes for another, hopefully, forty years. and maybe learning from them i'm not gonna like say guarantee that i'm gonna learn from them but i will be making them
2: i i cannot learn from mistakes because i just don't make them shut up (laughs) (laughs) yeah i do i do make a a, a lot of mistakes
1: me too i just killed a roll of 220 shanghai black and white i have no idea how i did it it was a mercy killing (laughs) It was a mercy killing. It was like a pillow on the face type yeah. of situation. That, like where Shanghai. you didn't realize it was gonna take 12 minutes and 30 seconds to smother that roll to death.
2: And you've learned to just keep doing that with Shanghai, I hope. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think of the last mistake that I really learned from. And, and do you learn from mistakes? Well, here's the difference. Yeah, the, the perfect practice makes perfect potential bullshit. And the learning from the mistakes ideal. They're diametrically opposed to each other. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you can learn to you can learn from your mistakes to you become perfect and then keep being perfect, which is what perfect practice apparently means. But I think that's silly. Sometimes you just have like a a full on mistake.
1: Well, yeah, there's just like off days or you yeah, yeah, you made a mistake and then you kind of refresh yourself like, okay, before I go out, I need to make sure that I do this, this and this because I forgot last time.
2: But most of the mistakes aren't full mistakes. Most of them were. I think I could have done this a little better or a little differently. Mm-hmm. And you know, at some point, those don't those those stop being mistakes and just start being your work. Where you True. sort of fade out what you don't want and fade in what you do.
1: Well, so you're evaluating the way that you're working. Yeah.
0: Hi guys, Michael here. So, despite the fact that I still don't consider myself a particularly good photographer. There was a specific moment in time when I decided that I just might be good enough to even call myself one. And it was when I found out that I won my first photography contest. The fact that the juries decided that my photo, taken with already malfunctioning Olympus trip 35 on a cheap-ass Formoban 400, fits the theme of the contest more than other entries, which often look very crisp, well-thought, digital, was very heartwarming and reassured me that even with my equipment, my work can be appreciated outside my group of friends. Cheers, guys. Okay,
1: so I know why you think this is controversial because you don't like photography contests, which I understand, but I am swaying more to just fucking doing them because it's if, if there's money involved, (laughs) if you don't have to pay (laughs) anything, if it's free and there's money involved or a grant, for instance, like I had a message uh, from Pete actually. He's like, Hey, you should really um, go for this grant because we don't have a lot of people just submitting. I think a lot of people don't trust themselves. So they don't submit. And, I think you'd be surprised. I think maybe submitting your stuff more often would be a good thing.
2: Sure, and I have no problem with the outcome of photography contests. Like if you win,
1: congratulations.
2: I'm sure it was a great picture. If you're happy with it and you wanna do that, awesome. I'm sure that's that's cool. My my problem is really more conceptual. I don't think we should be racing art. I don't no, think there's an, a I, reason to be, I don't think there's a way to do that. No, Not there even a reason a, to, but, but I don't think it's possible. I
1: understand that because I feel the same way about surfing. like I'm just like, Ugh, why do we always have to make everything a competition? So yeah. I do understand that. Yeah. but I guess maybe just like don't consider it a contest. maybe consider it something else.
2: <laughs> okay. I mean, look, if that's what you want to do, I'm I'm really am uh, between don't care and fine. So that's great. this is definitely not like never do this. It's, that's a stupid line in the sand to draw for other people but for myself i just don't feel comfortable with it i think it's i think it's a weird concept and and we do we compete in in so many areas of our lives and we're pitted against each other in so many areas of our lives and i think yeah. art is the one place where we shouldn't be or at least i don't want to be so and i know that we you know we i don't think it's human nature but i think we you know because of society or whatever I think we we automatically do that. We we judge each other's photos and I like this one better. But you know me, I can't pick my favorite
1: of anything. I'm like a, f- a goldfish. Every 3 seconds I have a new favorite. Yeah, exactly. So
2: I can't <laughs> I I don't trust somebody else to be able to pick a favorite photo out of, you know, 50 or 100 or whatever. I don't trust people to do that. Uh yeah, it's it's just not for me. But that all that said, having people you respect and i'm going to assume in this case that michael respected the jurists here having people that you respect like your photo or like any work that you do is really wonderful
1: well yeah also in a kind of sorry in a digital type of world where it's he probably was competing against a lot like maybe 98 percent
2: maybe yeah i mean for some reason they they seemed to not want that look. I don't know what the the contest was or anything. It sounded like they wanted something a little rougher, or a little more filmy, or whatever. I'm not sure, but he delivered what they wanted, and he respected those those folks. And he stood out. And he stood out, and they liked his work. And that's awesome. That's all of that. All of that. Every single bit of it is wonderful. And sincerely, congratulations. That's pretty cool. No buts. That's just
1: pretty cool. No coconuts.
2: Um, no, I don't. Not a big fan of coconuts. Ugh, I what's
1: wrong cocon- with I hate you? Everything coconut. You are wrong in so many lo- so many levels. You wrong know what? I. You haven't been like extremely thirsty, sunburnt, and tired from like being in the sun all day. Are and you had serious? A fresh coconut opened up and drank it. You,
2: I've never been. Coco frios. <laughs> uh, I just don't like coconut. I don't like the flavor, and when like, I'm so eating God. it, I don't like the, the texture if it's in things, I don't want that like mystery crunch going on. Not a fan. I don't like any of it. Coconut oil. It was like this, like super healthy oil for like two minutes until, you know, people actually looked at it and went, oh no, this is the literally the unhealthiest oil you can cook with. And then everybody gave it up. So no, fuck coconuts. Of course, we're not talking about the Marx Brothers movie. That was perfect. Mm, Pretty, pretty perfect. Duck Soup is more perfect. Night at the Opera, even perfecter than that. So, all of this said, give a listen to our next episode of Dev Party to hear our take, potentially, on the question. But until then, Vanya, what is the next question we are
1: asking? Well, since the next episode is our Halloween episode, this is the most fitting question we can kind of think of. What happens to your camera when you die?
2: Yes, all of your cameras. <laughs> what happens to all of them?
1: Call our answering machine and leave us a message. And by call up, we mean go to Instagram and leave us a voice message. And if we like you very much, which we probably do, we'll play it on the next episode. The deadline for this one will be Tuesday, October 18th.
2: It's a very spooky day. We've talked to both Kate Miller-Wilson and Taylor on this show before, but today we got them together at the same damn time. They've been working on several collaborations together and the work has given them new insights into photography and working together as a whole. So here are Kate and Taylor. So how long have you two been collaborating together?
4: I think that you and I have been shooting one-on-one since just, like, July.
3: Yeah. It,
4: it hasn't been that long.
3: No, it hasn't.
4: But, yeah, we were trying to, sh- like, fit in, you know, as many sessions together as we could, but, like, we're busy, you yeah. know? In a perfect world, we would have shot more.
2: So, do you see, like, the collaboration, do you see it differently than shooting together? Or is it just kind of semantics?
4: I think it's different than shooting together because it's like it's more one-on-one and we don't have to find a way to divide time between mm-hmm. people. It's always one person is taking the photo and one person has a job of, as the model essentially. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there's nobody standing around to wait <laughs> for something. <laughs> yeah. But it feels efficient to me. Oh, yeah. I like that.
3: I think that the the collaboration aspect of it is just comes from like building off of each other's ideas. I mean, we are shooting together. One person's shooting and the other person's being the subject and then it switches and we switch every couple shots Yeah, and then each shoot, maybe 12 sheets of film. And, but the ideas are like, our ideas kind of build on each other's. So that becomes that, I think that it becomes a collaboration because of that, it's like that openness to sort of like brainstorming. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: So are you finding that you're producing photos you wouldn't otherwise produce?
3: I think that that whole idea of it, build of the sort of concepts and the photographs building on each other mm-hmm. with the turn-taking kind of lends itself to stuff that we wouldn't necessarily, that I wouldn't necessarily produce on my own. It's sort of like a scaffolding to this other idea that I wouldn't necessarily take that path and wouldn't wouldn't get to that idea because I didn't. So I think it opens up stuff that I wouldn't I would normally shoot which is which is really awesome
4: and I think for me that the ease that I feel with working with Kate was instant and very organic like I immediately felt really relaxed with Kate you don't really get that with everyone I'm like a naturally anxious written person and I'm thinking a lot and I can really just shut my brain off when I'm with her I know that I'm not going to throw out an idea and it's going to be judged. You know what I mean? I, I know that.
3: Yeah, no, I totally agree. I feel like I feel the same way like it um, because I'm also really socially anxious. Like I do awkward things all the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I also feel like, I feel like Taylor is okay with that. And like we just said, we talk about that stuff sometimes and yeah. And I I think the idea that that the things that we suggest are going to be accepted and it's not, there's no judgment about this, like, oh, I don't know about that or, you know.
4: Yeah, it's like incredibly awkward and clunky at times. Yeah. But like we both know that, like we know that we're not there to like have this idealized version of what taking photos is. Like we know (laughs) that the idea is like, it's a goal that's bigger than looking cool. Nobody's here to look cool. Yeah. (laughs)
2: It's just an added benefit, really.
3: (laughs) Well, I I have a Taylor just got one, but I don't think we've used it yet. These like flesh colored (laughs) leotards. (laughs) So you can do like, like without having clothing become part of the story, right? Like that's one of the appeals of nude photography is like the, the clothing. If you, if the model's wearing clothes, the clothes say something about the model and the situation and can shut out some of how the viewer can step into that like without that part of the story it's like oh okay you know it could be anybody it could be anything happening and so we can do that with these with these leotards (laughs) but but they look they look naked (laughs) and so it's it's always really funny because, like, there was an old lady walking her dog one time, and I'm just like running around in this
4: skin-colored <laughs> leotard. It always <laughs> happens to you. I don't know why <laughs> the people will walk by a and she has the <laughs> leotard on, and they have to like. <laughs> what,
2: what, yeah, would you recommend the skin-colored leotards for just general photography? It seems to be helping you.
3: It it
4: doesn't hurt us. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it is helpful yeah. and we like that i mean you can you can do a lot with, mm-hmm. with that yeah we really yeah. like that reoccurring theme of anonymity and what we're mm-hmm. doing because i think it's a it's it's a nice breeding ground for ideas mm-hmm. when you take out the fact that i'm shooting kate i'm shooting a figure that's either a body or a body part or something that is you know her face has been obscured by something
3: I, I think one thing that that can be very effective in a photo is is to leave room for the viewers own experience. So the viewers they're looking at it and brings their own life experiences, sensory experiences, all of that. And if the subject is anonymous, then that in some ways is easier and it is it's just different. Like you can have a portrait and the person has emotion and that connects to the viewer because they have emotion or they've shared that emotion before.
2: Taylor you were first photographed by kate about a year ago like how have your own photographic ideas changed since then
4: well as you know i shoot a lot of abandoned landscapes i'm aware of and, this and i well, we'll really only get to go to north dakota maybe twice a year to feel to to satisfy that need that i have to scratch that itch that i always have and that isn't here in the cities, but I hike and I love nature, but that's not cutting it for like the creative need that I just started feeling. I approached this time with Kate initially as like practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that she had so much experience and that there was a lot that I could pick up, but also just practice um, photographing like parts of her. And after doing that a lot, I knew that I really wanted to keep going with that. And I think that that has sparked a new seed of creativity. Watching Kate, it's opening up my mind all the time. I'm like, whoa, this is endless possibilities of things that you can create. And it's just like playtime times a thousand and you're a kid and you're standing in the river and it's just like, it's so exciting.
2: (laughs) You guys call it playing cameras.
4: Yeah, that's what I call it. I love it. I know. Kate has coined that term and I stand by it. Yeah. It what? is like that though.
3: Like like playing dolls. My sister and I used to play dolls. Mm-hmm. And we would create this entire world where, you know, we had these dolls and the dolls had like we were the moms, but it like drama happened and it became this thing. You know, you create this amazing pretend world. And you don't get to experience that as an adult. Like mm-hmm. there aren't that many ways you can have that collaboration and, and create together something that you didn't have individually shooting with another photographer and Taylor and I have done a lot of this and it feels like that very much. It's like that same, like intense excitement of creative flow, but you're sharing it.
2: It is like playing then, like when you were a kid.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I haven't felt that way in a long time, you know, that like really, you know, when you're a kid and you just like have this like excitement that's there. You yeah. feel good all the time as a kid and then you become older and you don't really get that as much. Yeah. It's like when we were at that first day in the river, i feel like I truly felt that way. And I was like, this is how I'm supposed to be acting as an adult. What have I been doing for the last like ten years? <laughs> <laughs> it's like going through the big costume box and you're just deciding like what you're gonna dress up as, yeah. basically.
2: <laughs> so okay, let's 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 talk props. You you do both use them. What comes first, the prop or the idea?
3: Prop, I think. Okay. What
4: do you think, Taylor?
3: Honestly, like,
4: I was thinking about this earlier, um, and what came to mind was the fact that I have no idea what's going on in my brain <laughs> before a cry. And I was like, I, I, I just, like, I lose consciousness or something. I don't know what happens, but I feel like, the adrenaline and excitement yeah especially in those moments and if you add in like golden hour or something where i suddenly feel like i'm racing the light yeah then oh, yeah. <laughs> i'm like more <laughs> more exactly it right yeah
2: does that pressure create more creativity
4: if i get it
3: right if okay. i get the shot right <laughs> <laughs> i mean that to me is one of my favorite things about shooting large format is that it's so engrossing and you're so, you're seeing everything. It, it isn't just that like, you don't even, I don't even think of it as like a camera. It's just like an extension of the way I'm thinking. Typically with portraiture, you're thinking, okay, I got to hurry because this person is standing here mm-hmm. and <laughs> and often not my people are children. I do a lot of that. And so I, I'm fast, but like, you have that conscious feeling of like, uh, okay, even if you're not like consciously trying to rush the excitement feels like rushing. Like you're, you're just getting more and more ramped up.
2: When you're out in the field, you are talking, you're chit chatting. There's a conversation going on. How, how have those conversations affected your outlook on your own photography or just photography in general?
4: The ability to talk about like pretty plainly your life in general is a way to let your guard down and be at ease and, And as soon as, like, as soon as you're at ease, then you can start opening the door for creative creativity in my mind. That's how I see it. I feel like if I can be as much myself, then I can move on to the next thing, which would be, you know, to be creative. Yeah. So for me, like our conversations really started first as getting to know each other, you know, and now I feel like we are, we have a, a good friendship. And so that, that probably helps that symbiotic relationship where we're trusting each other and not judging each other with anything. And and these ideas can flow pretty freely between us.
3: We talk about photography more often like over text or something. If we're going to talk about photography, when we're out shooting, we're talking about, you know, our lives and challenges we've dealt with, um, sort of like more intimate emotional details. And I think that that that's sort of part of that dynamic. Like when anybody who's a subject of a photograph, they're vulnerable, right? Like you're in front of a camera, you're vulnerable. And as a photographer, you know more. <laughs> like it's harder to be, I think, I mean, I'm used to it um, with a lot of self-portraits and I think Taylor has, a lot, has done a fair amount of this too. Like, you know, seeing yourself, it's hard. It's, it's a, it takes practice to see yourself as a subject. When you're doing a self portrait, you still have control. Like you're, you're deciding what angles you do. You're deciding, you can't see what you're doing, but you're deciding like on your lighting, you're deciding everything. And it takes trust to be, to do that with another photographer because you know exactly what is going on. I had a surgery for my, uh, for a tumor in my abdominal wall um, about like 13 years ago now. And it, it, they removed like half of my abdominal wall. So I look pretty much okay, like walking around, but I know that when I look at myself and I like, don't have, if I don't have clothes on or if I have a flesh toned leotard on, (laughs) um, it shows I can do that. uh, uh, You know, for myself, I can take a a self-portrait and know that that's there and decide, you know, how I feel about that and how I show that. But it takes a lot of vulnerability to have someone else take those pictures. And I think that, that having that relationship, um, and being willing to be vulnerable is, is a really, it's powerful, like on an emotional level. And it's also really powerful creatively because when we want to form a connection with, with an audience, I think vulnerability has to be a part
4: of that. She nailed it.
2: Well, you kind of led into it. So let's discuss two of the photos. Let's discuss the two photos that we were going to discuss today, I guess. Um, the first one is by Kate of of uh, Taylor. Describe what we're looking at here because it is an odd little photo.
4: Well, you, the camera is looking down on me uh, and I'm in my leotard, <laughs> but uh, Kate had a really, a ingenious idea to have this thin plastic lay over me. And then while she was firing the shutter, she was gonna rip it off. And so that created this rushing of almost like a water mist effect uh, over me. And I kind of almost looked dreamlike or like dead or you know, whatever that could be. I don't really know. Um, I think that's up to the viewer. It it
2: has a very water quality. It it looks It looks like you're laying in
3: water. You know, Sally Mann's pictures of the body farm. There's the one where there are. Okay, this is maybe going to be too gross for. Unlikely. Okay, (laughs) it's Halloween
2: season. Bring (laughs) it it on.
3: So it's a dead body, right? So the body Mm -hmm. farm, like um, people donate their bodies to science there to study forensics and to help people sort of put together what happened and how long and decomposition and all that stuff. So people's bodies are just laid out and they are allowed to decompose. So Sally Mann because she's incredibly awesome and brave went there and did a bunch of large format photography of dead bodies. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking about this one particular photo where there's this man's face and it looks like a veil is over it because it's a long exposure of actual maggots like on oh, the body. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty gross, but that, you know, that something could be turned into something so beautiful. I, I I just always thought that was amazing. And obviously that is not what was happening here. But I was thinking about how a long exposure can have that sort of veil-like obscuring effect. And, and that having that sort of lack of clarity, it, it has a magical element to it. We waited till it got really... We were losing the light and I was waiting for that, that time because I really like I knew that I, and I went with my meter to find like the darkest spot. And then Taylor laid down under a tree because it was really dark there. And then it was a half second and I just pulled the the plastic at the same time that I clicked the shutter. And it turned out the way I hoped it would, which is always amazing when that happens.
4: <laughs> I, I was stressed because I was like. Why does she want to go under the tree in the darkest spot? We're losing the golden hour. You know, like <laughs> what are you doing? And she's like over here with her light meter, in like the darkest spot. <laughs> hey.
2: It's gonna be magical, like maggots. Just do this.
4: <laughs> I hadn't seen the image. She's explaining to the, me. She's explaining it to me, and I'm laying down, and I'm like. Um, uh-huh. She's, like, covering me up with plastic. <laughs>
2: <laughs> this is fine. It's all going well. I'm covered in plastic.
4: Her results surprise me, and they aren't what I was expecting. Even as a photographer, I don't really know what what is going to happen. It's really exciting because I can be the model and, and, and see an image of myself and think, wow, that's me there? Wild. And it's really exercising a lot of ideas, uh, working with Kate. And I know that she's kind of this endless stream of of spontaneous things that we can do and draws inspiration from art and paintings. And yeah, I think that Kate is obviously brilliant. And I told you she is very, very cool.
2: I suspect it's true.
3: <laughs> I'm not so sure.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so we'll move
2: on to, to your shot, Taylor, of mm-hmm. Kate. Kate, could you describe Taylor's?
3: So it's this backlit photo of me standing in a field and I have um, like this diaphanous piece of fabric that's sort of glowing in the light. And I'm maybe not quite a silhouette, but there's texture of grass too. And it's just this beautiful, like the tonality is beautiful, the light is beautiful. I like looking at it because I know that that was one of those, this was something that was entirely came it came entirely out of Taylor's mind it was from the situation like the light was so beautiful and it was this it was just the sun was just going down and the cloud there were clouds that came across and I was like oh she wants this backlight it's not going to happen like (laughs) because you know you get a little bit when it's cloudy but it's not that sort of um really high contrast kind of dynamic feeling light and I I was disappointed because I didn't think it was going to happen. And then it did. And she, we ran up to the top of the hill and like, this was when that woman was walking her dog and I was running around in my leotard. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I just love that that photo came out of the light and her mind and it was so beautiful. Like, it's just such a beautiful image.
2: Is there more to the story? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. More. <laughs> Tell the more.
4: <laughs> She's right. I was trying to race with the light, and I was getting my anxious adrenaline going. And I <laughs> was racing, and the cloud would come over, and ah, just wait a second—is the light's going to come back? But before that, we were down by the river, and this is just a step up from the river. So we didn't really know that this like beautiful spot was really up there. I don't know, Kate, if you if you spent a whole lot of time there, we but up we there, right in the house. Thing. Right. It's this beautiful meadow, green, and I took a lot of shots with that back lid. a lot in thirty-five, and then a, and then as many as I could with four by five. Before that, though, I I did I, oh, okay. I had Kate sit in the mud of the river in her leotard. She's sitting along the bank, and it, you know it's delicate, and she has you know holding her arm or, or something. Then we go up to the you know meadowy, beautiful, lit up area and we realized that, like her whole backside is covered in this river mud <laughs> but me being the most unobservant photographer possible i didn't know you know after i get done developing and i send her that scan i'm thinking will anybody notice this and and i didn't really want i didn't want to bring any attention to this before because i didn't want to take away from that photo i didn't want people just looking at that and now they're all gonna go look, <laughs> right. and look yeah. To, to preserve the integrity of this image, I didn't want, you know, too many people to know that we were dealing with a muddy bottom. Yeah.
2: <laughs> There's always stories behind every photo. You know, when I'm out on my own, I know those stories. And yeah, there's that's just me. But when you're collaborating with somebody, those stories are shared.
3: One of the things I love about collaborating with Taylor is that it does give me that feeling of to, to create and to come up with ideas and to try new things. And I think that it may help me this winter. I'm hoping with having that sort of hopeful new stuff to try someone who's also excited and it, it kind of builds on we build on each other with that. And I'm hoping it'll be like that.
4: It will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep.
2: So thank you both so much for coming on. We will do this again. This was very fun.
4: Thank you. Ah. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> <Bye-bye>. Bye bye. <laughs> bye.
2: The devotion of Tabitha Kinsey to her husband and photographer Darius Kinsey produced thousands of beautiful prints. As Darius captured the logging camps and railroads of the Pacific Northwest, Tabitha spent 50 years hunched over a basin under a red light, developing, fixing, and washing countless prints.
1: With Darius on the road almost constantly, she raised two kids and was compelled to employ her nieces to help her around the house or in the darkroom. She handled the family's expenses, the groceries, the cleaning, the entire household. She sacrificed her life for printing and was damn good at it.
2: History would typically only remember and Herald the photographer, who, with his huge cameras, his gigantic glass plates, and his constant travel, took over 10,000 photos. But with the Kinseys, the work of Tabitha the printer and devoted wife has also been remembered.
1: Five miles south of the Canadian border lies the little village of Nooksack, Washington. Tabitha's parents, Samuel and Elizabeth Pritz, moved here from Pennsylvania. Tabitha was the youngest of six children, all worked on the farm outside of town, though Tabitha found herself more interested in fashion than farming.
2: Born in 1875, by her late teen years, she modeled herself after one of the Gibson girls with a must-up bouffant and a dress with a high collar. By the time she was ready to leave home, she was offered the farm by her father. Her brothers and sisters all had their own homesteads and marriages, but Tabitha wanted none of this.
1: Tabitha wanted to live in the city and her father gave her a dowry to make it happen. She dreamed of the bustling streets, the lights, the parties. Already well-known in the Nooksack Valley, Tabitha was courted by the local boys. She was practically the Valley's Belle.
2: Soon she was engaged to be married to a railroad conductor, a handsome man who could provide for her while giving her the independence she craved.
1: But all this changed in late 1894. On a rainy winter day, a traveling photographer with dark hair and a boyish face pulled up to the farm and offered to take the family's portrait. He captured both the light and Tabitha's eye.
2: The railroad conductor knew of this itinerant photograph man, as he called him. He threatened to shoot him dead. For several days, there was serious concern that he might follow through. Fortunately for all, time eventually healed his poor little broken
1: heart. Tabitha's heart was taken by this photographer. Darius Kinsey. Their romance was swift and intense.
2: Darius was born in 1869. He hailed from Missouri and sought a life in the West, traveling to Washington with his brother in 1889. Together, they established the Mount Si Hotel in Snoqualmie, 20 or so miles east of Seattle. And as a side note, Mount Si doubles as Twin Peaks Mountain in David Lynch's Twin Peaks, and Snoqualmie doubles as the odd little town with a dark secret.
1: Shortly after arriving in Snoqualmie, Darius discovered photography. His first camera was a relatively small six and a half by eight and a half format. He received instruction from two photographers, one in town and another, Ms. Spalding, in Seattle. By the spring of 1890, he was in the field and shooting.
2: Within a year, he had himself an eight by 10, as well as a four and a quarter by six and a half. Already, he was traveling to logging camps to capture scenes almost nobody was capturing. Unable to make a living at this, he turned to traveling the small towns around Seattle as a portrait photographer. This was when he met Tabitha.
1: In the year leading up to their wedding, Darius went into business with another brother, Clark. They worked as photographers, though it's likely Clark served as his printer. His collection of glass plates, the only available and usable medium at the time, was growing. Hundreds were stored in his studio in Snoqualmie.
2: Tabitha and Darius were married in October of 1896. Darius had not just fallen in love with Tabitha, but he had fallen in love with the lands north of Seattle. While she wanted to move to the city, he chose the town of Sedro Woolley, 35 miles south of Nooksack, and still 70 miles north of the city of Seattle.
1: Darius's brother, Clark, remained in Snoqualmie as the newlyweds moved into their new house just two blocks off the main street of their new town. Cedro Woolley was on the rail line and was one of the larger towns in the area. There was a social scene, though mostly centered around the church.
2: This suited Darius just fine. He was a good Christian man, and this made Tabitha a good Christian wife. Her social circle soon revolved around the church, and her life was soon overtaken by the studio.
1: The Kinsey Studio opened in their home the summer of 1897, less than a year after they were married. By the following year, they purchased an adjacent lot and expanded. They ran all sorts of ads in the local newspaper, always reminding potential clients that they honored the Lord's Day. We take pictures every day in the year, holidays included, except Sunday.
2: Darius' skill in the studio under the dark cloth was certain even before he met his wife. Tabitha quickly learned not only how to shoot a portrait, but how to develop, fix, print, touch-up, and tint. And soon, she was second to none.
1: Here would be a good place to remind you that while the photographer is obviously essential, it's the printer that renders the work of art. She ensures what the photographer captured can be viewed by all. She sees the negative and decides how the print should look. Her choices during the printing process can render even the dullest negatives dynamic and magical. Her care in washing ensures that the prints will last generations.
2: For the better part of a year, life continued like this for the Kinsey's. Each day, except Sunday, found them filing customers in and out of their studio, especially between the hours of 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. when the light was the best. Their studio was lit by the sun through a huge skylight. But this would soon come to an end.
1: The main reason Darius moved them to, Cedruoli was so that he could be close to the logging camps, which he wanted to return to once the studio was up and running. And in August, he gathered his six and a half by eight and a half, his new stereo camera, a slew of glass plates, eight horses, a few carts, and five men, and headed east along various rivers into the Northern Cascades.
2: Here, his photos show the mountains and rivers. These were landscapes. Nothing much at all to do with logging. His photographic luck was very hit or miss at this point, and he returned in the fall with only 20 plates suitable for printing.
1: Though this longer excursion into the mountains stands out, Darius was increasingly absent from the home and studio. He left every chance he could. Week-long trips to logging camps and back on the circuit, taking family portraits and school pictures.
2: This left Tabitha alone with the studio for days on end. The studio didn't simply shut down when the photographer was away. Tabitha herself must have taken over the duties behind the ground glass. As she focused, shot, printed, and sold the portraits taken with the studio's four and a quarter by six and a half, Darius tramped here and there, mostly by horse and carriage, with the six and a half by eight and a half, the stereo camera, and the new 11 by 14 he just purchased. He had just built himself a darkroom tent and would use this for a few years. This might have taken some of the burden away from Tabitha.
1: The Kinsey spent nearly a decade in Sedra Woolley. Darius would be gone most of that time. His next long expedition was in 1900. He and a partner left in August to return in mid-September. They traversed a hundred or more miles in total, staying around Slate Creek, a mining district, and logging camp. He was shown around by a boy named Glee Davis, who recalled Darius decades later.
2: He was all tied up in pictures. He wanted a picture of everything. Take a picture. Oh, I'll get a picture of this. Well, here's a picture. I can almost hear him repeating like that as he'd go along. He was quick to spot something that he wanted to take. He was going to take a picture. He didn't hesitate if he wanted a picture of something. He was ready to get it in the best shape he could.
1: His photos from this excursion captured life along the Skagit River, the roadhouses, the shacks, and cabins. He'd pose the inhabitants outside of their homes, sometimes showing them at work, other times having them hold implements of their trade.
2: Darius's photography through Tabitha's prints began to receive nationwide acclaim. In 1900, he was asked to send some for the display at the World's Fair in Chicago.
1: Also during this year, Tabitha gave birth to her first child, Dorothea. Throughout much of what is written about the couple, Dorothea never comes up, especially in the early years of her life. With Tabitha in the studio and darkroom most of the time, they must have employed a caretaker.
2: With two solo expositions under his belt, in 1902, both he and Tabitha took an expedition together. This time, they visited the mining town of Monte Cristo. He brought along his trusty six and a half by eight and a half, as well as the new twenty by twenty-four inch monster of a camera. This was the largest in the state of Washington.
1: The trip lasted two weeks. Meanwhile, the studio was overseen by someone named Miss Jennings, who, according to the local newspaper, thoroughly understands photography, having learned the art under one of the leading photographers of Oregon.
2: The traveling bug had bitten Darius, and the following year saw him journeying to two volcanoes, Mount Rainier and Mount Baker, in July and August. He was nearly killed on Rainier. They were hit by a blizzard at 8,000 feet one day and narrowly escaped a rock slide the day after. Tabitha joined him for the Mount Baker trip, even shooting a number of photographs on her own.
1: Though they could not reach the summit due to the nearly numberless crevices along the way, they saw smoke rising from the crater. Tabitha, along with a friend, Fronia Farnsworth real name, wore long dresses and smart straw hats. The party hiked until they were low on food and then made camp for a few days by the lake. By the end of the excursion, the skin on their faces were peeling and their lips were swollen. It's
2: not certain if Darius exhibited his work at the Chicago World's Fair in 1900, but in 1904, both he and Tabitha ventured east to view their work at the St. Louis expedition. They were gone for seven weeks, their longest trip yet, Along the way, they took 800 plates.
1: That same year, also saw Darius venture alone to Yellowstone National Park just with his stereo camera.
2: Tabitha was able to escape the darkroom three years in a row. Monte Cristo, Mount Baker, and St. Louis. But this would be the end of such travels. There was a change coming over Darius. The studio's ads and local paper were dwindling. It's possible that they had more than enough business to keep them going, but it seemed as if Darius was losing his interest in everything.
1: The following year, 1905, Darius left behind Tabitha, the studio and all of his cameras, but one. The local paper reported that he left in search of health, but never said where he went. If any photos were taken during this extended solo trip, none survived.
2: He was also spending even more time away in the woods with his 11 by 14, his go-to camera for logging camp photos. He now had almost no interest at all in studio work of any kind.
1: 1905 was their final year in Cedro Woolley. Tabitha was finally getting her wish to move to the city. Their time in Cedro was remembered by all, but mostly for their photos and their time at the church. There's no record of them attending any social gatherings or parties. This is a far cry from the life Tabitha wished for herself before meeting Darius.
2: Of course, without Darius, she'd have no excursions to the mountains and no trips to St. Louis. In the studio, she did more than serve as an assistant. With Darius gone almost all the time, the studio and the darkroom were both hers. The hours were long and the work was hard, but she had variety. She was more than a machine developing, printing, and washing.
1: With their move to Seattle in 1906, Darius vowed that he would take no more portraits. This, of course, meant that Tabitha would take no more portraits. They established their home and darkroom on East Adler Street, less than a mile away from where Imogen Cunningham would set up her first studio.
2: The differences between the two photographers, Darius and Imogen, were vast. It's almost certain that they must have known of each other. What the conservative Christian Darius Kinsey must have thought of Imogene's naked men lounging about the icy lakes of Mount Rainier is as obvious as it is hilarious. He would absolutely have disapproved. But what of Tabitha?
1: It's difficult not to imagine a different life for her. What if she had been able to move away to the city before meeting Darius? Would this Gibson girl-in-waiting have fallen into Emma Jean's collection of artists? Would she have eventually found herself crouching naked in the tall grasses, posing as a fairy? She would have arrived in Seattle just as Emma Jean received her first camera.
2: But for Tabitha, the move to Seattle was not one of exploration and artistic diversions. It was one of work and only work. When they moved, Tabitha was pregnant with her second child and Darius Jr. was born in April of 1907. When she gave birth, Darius Sr. was in Snoqualmie, photographing a logging camp. Word reached him that he had a son. And rather than returning to his family, he sent a note of congratulations in a small envelope.
1: Through the years, Tabitha's only job was in the darkroom. The role as caregiver and mother, even as wife, fell to far second of that of the darkroom. Her side of the family would visit often, usually to help with the kids and keep the house from falling apart. Just as often, the darkroom work was so plentiful that nieces would help wash and even develop plates.
2: One of these nieces recalled the summer of 1907.
1: Well, there were three of us girls there that summer. There was Lucy, Marwood, and Pearl Bays, and myself. And we kept very busy. That was the summer Darius Jr. was a baby, and I took care of him a lot, too but my main job was washing prints."
2: Darius Sr. was now gone almost constantly. The weeks-long excursions of the Sedro Woolly decade were replaced by an almost permanent absence from the home.
1: His routine was repeated over and over as he traveled from logging camp to logging camp. He'd arrive by train, unload 100 pounds of camera equipment and glass plates, find his bunk, and settle down for the night.
2: The next morning, he'd have breakfast with the loggers and then travel with them to where they were cutting. He'd photograph with his 11 by 14 camera, producing hundreds of plates each summer.
1: Whereas before he'd travel home with the plates, now he didn't bother. He shipped thousands of pounds of exposed glass to Seattle for Tabitha to develop and print as quickly as she could.
2: Laura Germaine Massey, who worked with Tabitha in the summers, remembered how it was.
1: He would send them in and there would be a big rush. We got the orders ready and mailed them back to him. And he delivered them to the men in the woods. He would usually try to be home on the weekends.
2: Ada Pritz-Brown, Tabitha's niece, also worked in the darkroom.
1: Well, I worked there one summer and even printed some pictures. I learned to print and I washed the pictures, 11 by 14, you know, those great big pictures. And I went with my Aunt Tabitha to the depot to deliver the pictures and oh, were they heavy. They just about killed you off. Well, I do know that she spent an awful a lot of time in the darkroom, and she did a lot of the tinting. He never could have done the work he did if it hadn't been for her help, because really, she did. You might say the main part of it after he took the picture. The main part of it getting them ready and finishing them He would have the glass plates delivered to the door, and they would come sometimes quite late at night. We would hear the doorbell ring, and we would say, oh, that's more pictures. Well, it ruined Aunt Tabitha's back. So much lifting made her a cripple. Just got her back all out of place.
2: This went on for years and years until finally in 1914, Daria switched to film. This, of course, didn't really lessen the workload for Tabitha. More than anything, it made the poster worker's job easier, since film weighs only a fraction of what glass does. For Tabitha, the weight of the film must have been welcomed, but it required just as much time in the darkroom.
1: With film came a different kind of work. Darius purchased a Fulmer Schwing circuit panoramic camera and itself deserves some explanation.
2: The circuit used roll film, kind of. It was in a roll. It was five inches tall and maybe 25 inches long. To photograph a panorama, the camera was placed on its tripod and focused upon one end of a scene that you wanted to shoot. Atop the tripod was a toothed cog, and on the camera's bottom was the mirror image of that cog. Once properly fitted, when you'd pan the camera left or right, the cogs would move the film along with the camera. So as you panned from the left to the right, the film would move with the image, and would be exposed through a small slit. Think of it sort of like a scanner. The small slit would scan the image onto the film as it passed by. In the end, you'd have one very long negative on a roll.
1: Tabitha had to invent some way to not only develop this massive roll, but to print it as well.
2: Uh, With film also came a realization. Over the two decades he had been shooting on glass, they had acquired a huge catalog of heavy plates, most of which were 11 by 14. And so in 1915, Darius took an inventory of all 10,000 or so plates. From these, he selected 240 to keep. The rest were reclaimed.
1: One of his assistants, Jesse Albert, explained.
2: The rest of the film was destroyed. All of those that were taken down to Pacific Picture Frame, and there were a whole truckload of them. It was during World War I, and Pemberton, I think that was his name, that owned the Pacific Picture Frame, told me that he was so anxious to get the glass that he agreed to destroy the image on each plate. And they set up a hot tank and hired a couple of kids to scrub the gelatin off the plates.
1: It seems that Darius didn't even keep the prints of the negatives he destroyed. Less storage meant that everything was becoming streamlined. There was the switch to film, but there was also the Ford Model T. This would allow him much more independence than the train would ever have given him.
2: There's a wonderful photograph of Darius with his collection of cameras all arrayed on their tripods with the new Model T behind them. Of note was the 11 by 14 atop a 12 foot tall tripod.
1: The family didn't outgrow the house on Adler, but with the money coming in from Tabitha and Darius's work, they could afford something larger. The family moved to Greenwood Avenue in 1919. By this time, Dorothea was 19, the same age as her mother was when she met her father, and Darius Jr. was 12.
2: They opened up a business called View Publishing House, with Darius Jr. being a secretary and senior as the man, quote, behind the camera when all our films are exposed. Tabitha and Dorothea weren't mentioned at all.
1: The logging had slowed down a bit, and... Darius was losing interest. His gaze was turning not back home, but to industrial photography, especially the ever-increasing number of dams popping up around the Puget Sound.
2: He was getting older, and not having to lug the cameras way into the woods was what he needed. He'd still photograph sawmills and lumberyards, but those were easy to access. This practice lasted through all of the 1920s. His subjects might have changed, but the work for Tabitha was as constant as ever. She still developed, printed, and washed all day, every day, except for Sundays.
1: In 1925, the entire family visited Yosemite. Here, as well as on other shorter trips, like the Columbia Gorge, they witnessed their father at work. Though he produced thousands of shots, he was meticulous and slow. He'd often forsake the family at the car and wander away into the woods by himself, 11 by 14, over his shoulder.
2: The 1930s were much the same as the 20s. Alfreda Kinsey Tiddens recalled her time helping at the Greenwood House.
1: I worked for them when he was going around the logging camps, and he would send in the negatives and Aunt Tib would develop them. And I'd help her develop them. If I didn't happen to be there that day, she'd call and I'd have to dash up. When the negatives came in, we had to do them right now and then probably get the prints out the next day or so. So I was always in the darkroom with her and she'd ask me things. She'd say, well, what do you think about this? Then she'd get a little more developer and then she'd leave it in the tray and kind of look at it for a little bit. And when she'd get the negatives developed, why we'd start printing. And then I had to make up all the orders, put them in big envelopes that had all the things written on them, and put on the envelope the name of each person. And then she dragged them downtown, carry all that big load downtown, and mail them out that night or whenever she could. She was really a workhorse.
2: As Darius and Tabitha grew older, she began to worry that he would get hurt. And in 1940, he did. He was climbing up a stump to get a photo and fell off of it. It didn't seem like he was very hurt, but... That was it for him. After that, he never took another photo again.
1: Five years later, at the age of 75, Darius Kinsey was dead. Tabitha would live for another 17 years, but by this time, her Gibson girl dreams were long gone.
2: The photographer, Darius Kinsey, had an eye like nobody else. He was the perfect person for the job that he did. His photographs of the Seattle area logging camps and railroads are more than just documents of history. They're works of art, each one holding a beauty that only Darius's eye could capture.
1: But Darius the husband and Darius the father were a different thing altogether. He was never accused of harshness or meanness. There was no abuse. Both of his children, as well as Tabitha herself, have nothing but kind, loving words to say about him. The book about his photography are filled with interviews glowing over how kind and caring of a man he was. But they also spoke of his quietness and his need for solitude.
2: Alfreda, again, also noticed this.
1: He was a very quiet man, you know? He never liked to be out with people much. And my dad, Alfred Kinsey, Darius' brother, used to tell me that when they were still in Missouri, Darius would like to go out with the sheep and go up the hills. He liked the solitude. He was kind of a deep thinker.
2: His children grew up with their father absent, but with a dozen or more family members constantly visiting to help out and to spend time with them, even without Darius, their lives were full of love and community.
1: But Tabitha had always wanted more. She wanted a social life, but Darius wouldn't allow it. Or to maybe be a little bit more kind, Darius's worth, Darius's work ethic wouldn't allow for it.
2: In a 1953 interview, nearly a decade after her husband's death, Tabitha spoke about her work almost flippantly.
1: There isn't much to say. I only did my duty. Any good wife would have done as much. Photography was my husband's business and it was my job to help. I tried never to let him down. I could see nothing especially noteworthy about that.
2: In articles written about her, this view is often praised, and often by male authors. But Alfreda, in a 1974 interview nearly two decades after Tabitha's passing, saw another side.
1: Uncle Darius would never go any place with her. He was too busy. He just didn't have the time to go. But when the kids were married and gone and she was there by herself nearly all the time, she'd go downtown and order a bunch of desserts first. And maybe some other little thing in the cafeteria. Oh boy, she just had a good time. She was a wonderful person. You would have loved her. She never said anything about anybody or anything like that. But she used to talk to me. I was younger then. And she'd always say, Well now, what did you do last night, Alfreda? Who'd you go out with? What did you do? And she always wanted to know everything like that because she never got to have very much social life. She was always interested in what everybody else was doing.
2: And that's the story of Tabitha Kinsey, a woman who was crippled by the darkroom. She gave up her dreams to be a good Christian wife to a man who might've been an amazing photographer, but had little business being a husband or a father. One of the most wonderful developments that we've had in the film community is that more and more people are doing zines. So if you yourself produce a zine, we would love to review it. And if you know of a zine that we should review, we would love to review it. We're more than willing to pay for the zine outright. We're not asking you to send us free copies of anything. So this time around on this episode, Vanya, you have a zine for us.
1: Yes. Farm Stands, Volume 1, by Al Robinson Welsh. I was supposed to review this, like, maybe two episodes ago. Okay. (laughs) But it was swallowed in the nightmare that was my car after a road trip, of course. So when I popped into Picture Perfect Photo Lab in New Mexico... I met Alicia. They helped me with my film and handed me this great zine. Over the years, Alicia worked for several different farms. They loved to see all the different ways they would display their produce at the market. This tiny 4x5 zine is packed full of produce as well as lovely bouquets of flowers and yes, corn. Farmstand is a quintessential look into small farming communities. Vibrant colors, delicious fresh produce will inspire you to maybe add something healthy to your meal. As well as kind of appreciating the long hours and dedication it takes to actually be a farmer, we might not realize. But the way things are displayed is the difference between getting a sale or not. We might we might not really be conscious, but almost everything around us is a potential sale. So next time you cruise through the local farmers market, grab some apples and thank your local farmers. So the one thing I just wanted to mention. Um, It is actually the most adorable size zine. It's super tiny and cute, but kind of perfect, almost pocket size, I would say. They said that they still have a few things available and they're working on volume two as well. So they're $10, DM them on Instagram to get a copy. On the back page, I didn't realize, but a lot of these pictures, some were in 2018, most of them were in 2020. It's kind of neat. It's lots of New Mexico, but also farms in New York and in Pennsylvania. And even Pike's Place Market in Seattle.
2: Wow. Pennsylvania and Seattle.
1: Yeah. Pennsylvania, Seattle, Catskills, and Thailand to Bangkok oh, wow. in 2011. So
2: they get around.
1: Been very shooting cool. film for quite some time. And it, yeah. is, it is really neat to look at. I enjoy it very much. It was kind of a little bit of a refresher from things that I normally see. It kind of just goes to show that it doesn't have to be this like giant thing. <laughs> you can just make... Yeah. Just make something, print your pictures, you will thank me later.
2: (laughs) And so you can get this by DMing at Al Robinson Welsh on Instagram. All Through a Lens is made possible by our generous and amazing Patreon subscribers through their small monthly donations, we're able to afford to get the podcast running. So Patreon helps us cover the expenses for hosting, but not just that. If we need audio equipment, Patreon helps cover that. And it also helps us buy the books that we use for research and the zines to review.
1: To our Patreon subscribers, thank you. We couldn't make this podcast without you.
2: Now, since we last talked to you, we've had two new Patreon subscribers we have Chris W and the username it is R genus
1: yeah
2: okay well to both of you sincerely thank you so so much we really do appreciate yes, it yes
1: we do when you subscribe to us on Patreon you get monthly bonus episodes full-length interviews and
2: this uh, this episode is the full-length hour 20 minute interview with Kate and Taylor where we get into a lot more topics than we did in the one you just heard on this episode. So it's absolutely worth it.
1: Some random posts and photos and much more extra nonsense, of course.
2: Now the extra nonsense also includes the close friends on Instagram for the stories. Like when I'm traveling, I will post quite a lot to close friends and that's for patreon subscribers
1: so head on over to patreon.com slash all through lens for more info
2: we've got three different levels of support with the cheapest being less than a buck an episode well vanya somehow i don't know how somehow we made it through another episode we did our <laughs> 70th episode wow the big 7-0 yep So what are you up to this next coming
1: week? Mm, Well, I am hoping that I get the Roloflex back soon. So if you guys remembered, I got that Rolly Marine. Well, the Roloflex needed some some work. So I spent the amount I could probably sell my kidney to get it fixed. So it better be fucking perfect.
2: (laughs) Now, this Rolly Marine is the underwater roly. Yes. Essentially a roly and a...
1: A rollie and a, uh, a, a poly, I would say.
2: What, what You would say that, but what is it? A, a, it's like a, a cast
1: iron giant. You know, like those old timey helmets. <laughs> it's like a, a cast iron housing <laughs> for okay. the Roloflex. That's
2: intense. You'll have to share it on social media when you get it all.
1: I absolutely will. I will, yeah. since... The water's been nice and I'm hoping it continues that. I will hopefully cross my fingers that the I get it back in the next week or two and I don't sink myself to the bottom of the ocean floor and die. So we'll let you know how it goes.
2: Whatever happens, don't let go of the camera.
1: Exactly. So the other thing I kind of wanted to mention was I have a project kind of in the works right now with somebody else. uh, And it's really fucking exciting. I can't tell you much about it just yet. But it does happen to have a little bit of super 8 millimeter. So, yeah, I got one. I'm very excited. I got the Nautica and, um, maybe I'll do some, a little bit of testing with it. It's very expensive, so maybe not a lot, but at least enough to kind of get the idea of how I'm going to, uh, be shooting surf, of course.
2: Now the Nautica is an underwater super Mm eight. Yep. That's impressive.
1: Yeah. It's really exciting. Uh, it's going to be a little bit further up north uh in the santa cruz area so uh if i survive (laughs) the shark swimming around me i will let you know how wet (laughs) it's a big if yeah it's a little terrifying to be honest i was just thinking about like being submerged in that cold water for the amount of time i probably need it's it's i think i might need to get a new wetsuit (laughs) oh no how about you? How, what do you got going on for the next two weeks?
2: I would really like to get out camping again before like the colder and darker autumn sets in. But I, I don't know, if it might, I might have, that might be over for the year. And that's kind of a bummer. October can be really hit or miss, especially when the sun's setting so early and rising so late. Sometimes it just doesn't make sense to go camping.
1: Yeah, I, I guess the amount of light is kind of a bummer.
2: Yeah, but it's fine for day trips, you know? It's actually kind of nice for day trips. You get up really early in the morning and you get out there right when the sun comes up. And it's a nice warm drive the whole way rather than shivering in the tent waiting for the sun to rise. And the same at night. You know, Maybe driving home in the dark isn't wonderful, but it does beat shivering sometimes.
1: Yeah, well, you could just do what my dad does now. He just spends like two months in South America, in Chile. He's like kind of got like endless summer vibes going on. So when it gets really cold here, which is not really that cold because it's Los Angeles, uh, yeah, he really. goes down to Chile and it's summer.
2: <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I could do that. I, I do need a summer home. Yeah, in Patagonia. Southern hemisphere. You would
1: have like, I don't know, 15 hours of daylight or something crazy. I don't know.
2: I see no reason why that wouldn't work for my life right now.
1: So before our our next amazing episode, which I'm really excited to talk about, what what do we have coming up for Dev Party?
2: We will be talking about Stand Developing, why it works, how it works, why to do it. And it will be a longer Dev Party episode since it's Stand Developing. And so because the episode's going to be longer, we'll have a bit more conversation. You'll see. It'll be, I don't know. It'll be fun. So our next episode is about Halloween. And if you don't know what the Diableries are... You soon will, and you will thank us. Vanya, is there anything else they need to know?
1: Thank you for listening to All Through a Lens. If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's Podcast at Gmail, and we're at All Lens on Twitter. You could also check out our show notes on allthroughalens.com.
2: Vanya is at Surf Martian on Instagram, and... At silver waves of grain on granary? Question mark.
1: And Eric is at conspiracy dot of dot cartographers on Insta and of Cart on granary?
2: Question. <laughs> and speaking of question mark. <laughs> Make sure to hashtag your stuff, hashtag All Through a Lens Podcast to be featured on Instagram.
1: You can find our episodes on Spotify as well as Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever else you find podcasts, subscribe and leave a review. Thank
2: you all so, so much for listening. We'll see you at the next dev party. We love you. Bye-bye.
1: Um, Banya? Yes? Do you want to go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do.
0: Let's go!